So sometimes it doesn't take uh, long to look around and get examples of ways that the world uh, has become a more and more, what's the word we want to use, interesting, uh, confused, crazy, ridiculous uh, place. And as we are in the section now where we're going to be concluding the study of Judges, we've done some of this on Sunday nights, most of it in the morning, but this is the section that uh, in, well, first of all, we have a lot of material to cover. We're going to be just summarizing lots of this. So if you are, if you are worried at all that this may be a marathon, um, we can, uh, you don't have to be too worried. Although if you want that, uh, Pastor Nick and I are willing to just tag team, and when one gets tired, we can just, you know, tap each other and keep going. And uh, Don't tempt us, actually, because we, we probably would. But anyways, sometimes in this section, the only part that you hear preach about in sermons is the summary part about Judges, where it says that uh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is going to be repeated a few times in this section. But as of thinking that people doing things that are right in their own eyes and things that uh, shouldn't make sense but just make sense to them, kind of hit me. I got uh, a Time magazine. This week's edition came this week. And I noticed in here they had a, a story. Um, let me find it. I had the page a moment ago. Uh, but a section, it is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight pages devoted to a, well, the way that they describe it in here. Uh, this spring, he gave birth to his first child. But a, a man that supposedly gave birth. And it talks about this and how just interesting this is and the complications. Of course, this this person is not an actual man. This person was born a woman and still has female DNA, has enough female equipment that she could uh, give birth. But through this, it uh, presents her as a man, uses male pronouns, although it talks about her deciding that uh, she still wanted to give birth. And so she backed off of the uh, injections that she was getting uh, because the only way she could get the appearance of a man was by having artificial injections, obviously, so that she could give birth. But one thing that just caught me with this, and we can't take a lot of time talking about this, is this is, this is not a, one of those newspaper tabloids you know, that you see at the, the checkout aisle where it talks about you know, the Loch Ness Monster and you know, the, uh, somebody's you know, three-headed dog and these things. This is Time Magazine. And that shows just how things that would have been considered absolutely ridiculous, I mean, in the classic sense, things that would have been just ridiculed because it, that's just silly, are being passed off. And we're told that this is just, this is, we're supposed to accept that this is just normal. And that to the editors, to the people that wrote that, this is just right for them in their eyes. This makes perfect sense for them. And for others, we look at this and we get confused and wonder how in the world. But it's because ever since Genesis 3, mankind has been fallen and we just keep plunging into foolishness, into foolishness, into foolishness. And that's why a book of, like Judges, even though it was written over 3,000 years ago, 
has been so applicable to today. And even these chapters we're going to look at now, and there's some, I got to warn you, there's some wild and crazy stories, accounts here that are coming up, how applicable this is to us today in the world that we live in. Like I said, the best we can do is summarize a few key points. I tried to go through, and I'll have some things on uh, the screen. Uh, I don't expect you to have to write all of this down. It's more just so we can track with the main points of the story, and I'll give a few applications. Uh, but start in Judges chapter 17, and uh, this is the story of Micah and his idol. Sometimes for as Micah and the, the Levite. Uh, there's more than one Micah in Scripture, and uh, this is not Micah the, the prophet. As we'll see, this is uh, Micah that would not want to be your, your role model. Uh, so if we look at this, uh, we can see a few things that happened. And like I said, I have to summarize. And in the first paragraph, basically what happens is Micah makes an idol from his mother's silver. So if we look at this, we see in verse 1, it talks about a man of the hill country in Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and Elsha spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. So basically, here's what's happening. And just here's the thing in, in these chapters. Don't expect every time there's something that is wrong in here that God is going to say, oh, and this is wrong. Okay, there's going to be a few times where he is going to point out, and people did what was right in their own eyes. And I think we're expected that we're supposed to be realizing this and just seeing, yep, that was messed up. Okay, this too. Okay, that. It's like how many things, you know, if, if if, if we did a ding noise every time there was something messed up in, in here, uh, there, there would be a lot of racket going on. Okay, the counter would be accelerating very quickly. So, basically, someone had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from Micah's mother. Uh, by the way, just incidentally, that's also the same amount that Delilah was offered for each of the Philistine rulers for betraying Samson. But anyways, someone had stolen that from Micah's mother, and apparently she had uttered a curse against the person that had stolen it. So we've seen a few times in Judges where people just launch off with some kind of curse. We're going to see that again. And she probably didn't realize that it was her, her beloved son. Okay? And I think we can see here she has a relationship with him where, um, well, she seemed to be a person, well, she had, she had some money. And, you know, her, you know, child probably could do no wrong. But he had stolen this. And so Micah uh, has this, and he ends up, uh, well, first of all, he makes an idol from his mother's silver. I got ahead of myself here. Uh, someone had stolen this, and her son, probably afraid of this curse, he decides he's going to return the silver. So he tells his mother about this. And we saw the reaction, this, this indulgent mom is, is happy about this. You know, she she's, doesn't seem to be upset that he stole it. It's almost like treating him like he is the hero that, that he went and, and found this, when he's the one that took it in the first place. So he ends up almost getting rewarded for this. Seems like they have the relationship where, you know, son here, he's just the center of her world. This, this Micah reminds me of one of those kind of pampered, overly indulged 
you know, kids with, you know, parents with a lot of money, then they can, they can do no wrong. Um, and I'm not saying every family is like that, but sometimes you see people like that on the news and different things. So in her joy, now again, we're seeing already a few things that are, seem pretty messed up here. Uh, but now in her joy, what does this mom do to, uh, to celebrate this? She dedicates the silver to the Lord to make an idol. So she said, I'm so glad I got this back. Let's take the money Let's give it to the Lord so we can make an idol. Even though we are very clearly commanded, commandment number two, not to do that. So they decide to take this and to make an idol out of it. And then Micah gets the idol. Even though he stole it, he gets it back. So he's rewarded now. He has his idol. And he takes it and he makes a shrine for the idol in his home with an ephod, which is for the high priests. And it says he has other household gods as well. So, again, you know, ding, ding, ding as far as things that are not right about this situation. And it's just going to keep getting worse, by the way, okay? And it's like a train wreck that, that keeps getting worse, this in, this, the whole ending of, of Judges. And so then Micah, in verse 5, he ordains one of his sons to be the high priest. I mean, there's several things wrong with that. You can't just go ordaining your own son to be the high priest. And his son wasn't even a, a Levite, much less a dis, uh, descendant of Aaron. There's only one high priest. All kinds of things. And a high priest to worship and serve this idol and the other household gods. So that's just the beginning here. So next we see 7 to 13. Micah, now he ends up hiring a wandering Levite to be his personal high priest. Because, you know, if you, if you really want to have it going on, you know, get yourself your own high priest. I mean, some other people may have the butlers and this and that, but you have your own personal high priest to serve you. That's a pretty good status symbol. So there's this wandering Levite uh, coming through in verse 10. It says, And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and you're living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. So he had this, and it goes on, verse 13, and then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So you think, I have the ultimate good luck charm here. I have my own Levite high priest. Now, of course, the Lord will prosper me because I have this. Even though in six verses we have disobeyed God, I, I, I've lost track of how many times. So that's where we're at so far. And that's uh, chapter 17. Moving on to 18 in our summary. Well, one thing that we've seen already, even in, in chapter 17, it does give the priest comment in verse 6. And it gets repeated where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when, when scripture repeats things, that's a way to know this is a major emphasis. This is the main point it's getting across. And look how chapter 18 starts. In those days, 
there was no king in Israel. And it knows that you can fill in the rest. So here, this is part of the same story. It's connected. And you have now the tribe of Dan. They had failed to conquer their land, and they're, they're looking for some land. And some men were uh, scouts, and men from the tribe of Dan, they noticed uh, Micah's Levite. They came by and noticed, hey, you got a nice thing going on here with your household gods, and ooh, you have a personal Levite? That seems like a pretty neat thing that you have there. Then they, they, they left, and in verses 7 through 13, the Danites, the rest of them, they decided that they, they wanted this land in, in Ephraim. And so they sent in, because Ephraim had some, some pretty good land, and they sent in 600 of their best fighting men they were going to take this over. And when they heard about Micah's idol, like I said, I'm basically, I'm giving you a summary here. I hope that you'll be able to, uh, you know, take some time to read through the rest of this. It, first time through this section, it seems to be a whole lot of details. But if you haven't read this in a while, I'm hoping at least by going through this, and we'll give a few points of application again as well, it gives you a little bit of a frame of reference so you can read this more uh, in detail. So these uh, men of the tribe of Dan, which is one of the tribes of Israel, they also, they came by and they heard about Micah's idol, and they heard about his Levite, and they said, we would like these as well. So they came and by force, they took those. Chapter 18, verse 18, and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to him, what are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand in your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man, or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. You know, this guy had been, a little bit ago, he had just been a wandering uh, a vagabond looking for something to do, and he got this temporary job that he was okay with, um, you know, getting food in his belly and a place to live in Micah's house, but now he was, he was getting a promotion here, so he's pretty glad about this. It says, and the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And in the next section, it says that, uh, well, basically to sum it up, Micah protests, says, uh, he complains to them, but basically he's outpowered and he can't do anything. Verse 24, And he, Micah, said, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? And we could spend a lot of time just breaking down all the things that are wrong just in that sentence. First of all, the gods that I made, how backwards that is, and how we should realize how futile and foolish that is. And what a blasphemy that is. And he's upset that they're going to they're gonna go away, leave him with nothing. What have I left? He says, how then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. So they threatened him, stop complaining, or we're not just going to take your stuff, we're going to take your life. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. There's something I want to come back to in there in just a little bit, but I'll finish up this section. Because then in verse 27, 
basically the Danites establish a new city and a priesthold with the idol. And it's actually a lot more gruesome with that than that. In fact, the Danites, they went and they uh, found the, the town of Laish, which it describes it as a quiet and unsuspecting town. So what does the tribe of Dan do? Remember, this is one of the tribes of Israel. So we've got to keep reminding ourselves, all these stories, these are not the Philistines. These are not the Amalekites. These are, these are the tribes of Israel where this is happening. Those that are supposed to be God's people that are doing this. And they find this quiet and unsuspecting town, and basically they go in and they slaughter everyone. And they destroy the city, and then they rebuild it. And they rename it Dan, because they're the tribe of Dan. And now they can feel good about themselves because they have their city. They went in and, and killed the quiet and unsuspecting people there. And not only that, verse 30, 31, then they set up, they took the idols and their new uh, priests, and they set this up and, and kept that going for years after that. Here's one application I want to pull up from this, and there's lots more that we could, but it really hits me when Micah, he loses his idol, and he says this phrase, he says, what have I left? You know, sometimes we talk about idolatry, and, and you know that idolatry, back in that time, they had literal idols, a carved image, and today, it's, it's still an issue, even though in the West here, we don't have uh, most people. There's some that do, or, and, you know, actual carved image, and in the world, you can still find that. But for regular, respectable Americans, we don't have that, but there's still, idolatry is huge. And even with Christians, we struggle with idolatry. And I think we can see here that one of the ways that we can identify things that are idols in our lives things that have been above God, things that have taken on this importance that's too much, ask yourself, if there was something in your life that if it were to be taken away, would you feel, now I've been left with nothing. What more do I have? Because if you live for your job, if your identity is in that and you lose your job, what have I left? If it's your possessions, if it's your... your uh, your, your family, your health, who knows what it is. And that gets taken away and you feel like, I have nothing left. That's an indication to us that that's something we can't live without. And if that's the case, we should really realize danger, idle, idle alert in our lives. But do you realize what this means too, that if God really is number one, that's something that for believers that have Jesus Christ, something that will never be taken away, that can't be taken away. They could take away everything that we have. They could come and take away our homes. They could take away our freedom. They could do anything to us, but they can't take away our relationship with Jesus Christ. They can't take away the promise that we have in the gospel, salvation that we have through the blood of Christ, the hope that we have of eternity with him, the hope that we have of his return, and that he will make things right. If that is our highest thing, then it's not something they can take away. But Micah, he may have worshipped the Lord on the side, but he loved his idol more. And when he lost it, he felt that he lost everything. So that's the first story in this section. The second 
which is basically three chapters, basically deals with what we'll call the Israelite Civil War. I think it sums up to that. It starts with something that is a uh, one person, a few people's issue, something small, and it erupts and becomes something uh, throughout, the, throughout the whole nation. Clark, your flies up here. You want to come and get them? <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> well, I'll take turns, okay. <laughs> so, in the Civil War, we start looking at uh, chapter 19. We have here a story of uh, a Levite and his concubine. Now, this is a different story. This is a different Levite. This one doesn't get a name, and his concubine doesn't get a name. Uh, so his concubine, concubine is basically his, uh, his mistress, his girlfriend, uh, someone he was playing, playing house with and pretending to be married but not actually married uh, to this person and uh, having an illicit relationship with. And um, we're going to see here, this is not a good, healthy relationship by any by any stretch this story again is messed up from the beginning and just keeps spiraling more out of control taking messed up to a whole new level and and more after that and again what do we see in verse 1 of verse 19 in those days there was no king in Israel so we see this in the first section Verse uh, 1 through 19. Uh, basically, we can summarize this, that this other Levite, he goes to Bethlehem, and he, he wants to make up with his concubine. He wants to patch up things in their relationship. So he had this woman that he uh, uh, was romantic with that wasn't his wife, and um, it says that, so he had his mistress. It says in verse 2, this mistress was unfaithful to him, and with that, ends up leaving and returning to her dad's house in, in Bethlehem. So in verse 3, the Levite, is, he's going to get her back. That's his goal, you know, going uh, with what he can to, to woo her back. And it says in verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her, to bring her back, which just on its own sounds like a very loving thing, but I think it was basically of a heart of manipulation here, ship here and uh, that's going on. And then when it talks about this, um, in verses four through, 4 through 9, when he gets there, the dad, we don't really hear words coming from the, the concubine, uh, really, but the dad is happy to see him. And this dad keeps inviting him, oh, stay here, have something to eat, have something to drink, oh, spend the night. And the next day he says the same thing. It keeps him there five days just enjoying his company and keeping him around. And uh, eventually, uh, they decide that the Levite says, well, no, we're not staying anymore, we're going to leave. And so they leave, and the dad had kept them there most of the day, so they get a late start on their journey. And so the Levite and his concubine, they leave too late in the day to make it back home to, to Ephraimite territory. And so they have to decide, what are we going to do? I mean, you've had that where you're, you're traveling and you hit a point where it's, we've got to find a hotel, we've got to find something, we're not going to make it as far as what we wanted to. 
And one of the servants says, well, there's, um, there's the, the city of Jebus uh, nearby. Let's just stay there. And it tells us this is, this is also the city of Jerusalem, but this is before it's, uh, before it's conquered. So this is still a, a pagan city at this point. And so uh, the Levite says, no, we're not going to stay there with these foreigners. We're not going to do that. We'll go to one of our own people. So they insta- instead, they decide to stay in the Israelite city of Gibeah, which is an Israelite, so you think it should be better, instead of the wicked foreign city. And I think that's one of the ironies we're going to see here, as we see, what is this city really like? And this is, this is God's people? So, and his master said to him, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners, uh, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. So they decide to go there. So they get to Gibeah, and in Gibeah, they meet an, an old man that sees them, and this old man implores them and warns them, do not spend the night in the town square. You do not want to do this. It will not be good. This will not be safe. You do not want to stay in the town square. And so this man says, come, come to my home. I will take you to my home, and I will... Uh, put you up there. And then we're going to see why as we look at verse 22, just kind of what this man knew about the people in his town. And I think there's, you, you'll notice some echoes of some other stories uh, from the book of Genesis here. Verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And this is, this is a euphemism. They want to have uh, sexual relationships with this man. This is, this is a lot of similarities here with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that we see going on here. But some differences as well. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. But then here's his alternative. He says, Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. We'll give them up to you to, to exploit your lust upon them. He says, Let me bring them out now. So for a while you start to think, Maybe this guy is a, is a good guy and... And he says to them, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. And it was so important to them to, uh, to guard people that came into their home and to have good hospitality that he was willing to give up his daughter and, and this man's concubine too. You know, let them be your toy and do terrible things to them. But the, man would, the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. I mean, what an absolute story of just heinous, evil behavior. And what heartbreak for this poor woman. But then we see... It, it just keeps getting stranger and stranger 
Because then what is, what is the Levite's reaction? Verse 27, the master rose up in the morning. Did you get this? He was, he was able to have a good night's sleep while this is going on. And when he opened the door of his house and went out to go on his way, behold, he's just going to leave. Behold, there was his concubine lying on the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Just, just Hargazal was just pity, just trying to get in. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on his donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. We assume that she's dead at this point. We don't completely know that. But then get what he does. He's, you don't see much tenderness to her there, but he wants his revenge. Verse 29, and when he entered his house, this, is, this gets a little bit graphic here. Basically, he dismembers her. It says he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. Because this made sense to him. This was right in his eyes. And he sent her out through all the territory of Israel, basically to send a message to the 12 tribes saying, look at what these people did to my concubine and the abuse they did. Verse 30 says, And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So he did this, and this was basically a, a, a call to them, a call for war, that he wanted them to come and help him avenge uh, this situation and, it, and his concubine by this strange thing that he did that seems right in his eyes. Chapter 20, we'll do very quickly. There's a lot of details about the war and battles. Um, but again, one thing we have to remember here is this was Israel fighting Israel. They're not even fighting the Philistines or the Amalekites or the Midianites. So basically, sum this up, all the tribes of Israel unite. Now they can come together to fight against the tribe of Benjamin. So the Benjamin, the people of Gibeah, they were in Benjamin territory. So it's all the other tribes against this one. And so you have, well, 12 against one because uh, Joseph, his tribes, he had Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you're thinking, well, there's 12 tribes in Benjamin, that seems 13. It's because the one tribe gets subdivided. Verse 15, and the people of Benjamin mustered out of their city that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So you have the big Israel civil war coming. And it describes this. And basically after Benjamin does well, they, they're winning and, and humiliating all these other tribes at the beginning. But then eventually, and the passage describes how, eventually the combined the allied forces of Israel finally defeat and slaughter the Benjaminites. You know, they don't just um, do what they need to. They take this out, and they want to wipe them out. In fact, at one point, yeah, that is their desire to just no more tribe of Benjamin. We're going to slaughter them all. Verse 46 and 48, I'll read it to you. So all who felt, this is at the end when they finally defeat Benjamin, 
says, so all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. So you have these 600, or basically the only ones that are left. And these 600, this is going to be important again in the next chapter. And it says, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So in their rage, I mean, the, the red mist had descended here, and in their fury, they, they slaughtered all of Benjaminites. Their towns destroyed them, and we're going to see wiped them out, men, women, and child, except for even beasts, except for there was later on 600 that had gone into hiding. So then we get to chapter 21, which is the, the last chapter. And here you have record that at this point, when things calm down, they start to have a change of heart. And they realize a bit of, what have we done here? You know, we've almost wiped out a complete, one of the, one of the 12 tribes. And we'd have a tribe completely missing from Israel. And they realize there's, there's, well, there's 600 left, but there's a problem here. They don't have, they don't have wives. And this little fact of biology that it, it takes a man and a woman to create more, uh, you know, Benjaminites. And the other thing that complicated it is they had taken a vow at one point and said, we're not going to give any uh, women from our tribes to the Benjaminites. So now that they've killed them all and they've vowed to not give any of theirs, they think, well, well what do we do? So again, by their, their foolish actions, their foolish vows, they've gotten themselves into a, into a jam. They're having a little bit of a change of heart. But then look at what they think, what makes sense to them, how they're going to solve this problem. Like I said, it's one, it's like watching... It's like watching the Jerry Springer show or something. You know, and I know it's not on, and not that I recommend it, but it's like you're just one degenerative uh, thing after another. But it says here, verse 6, The people of Israel had compassion on Benjamin, their brother, and said, Our tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? So they, they make a plan. They realize that, oh, when we were here, people from Jabesh Gilead, hey, they didn't come and help us. And so, first of all, well, we're mad at them because they didn't come help us. We're supposed to all do this. And you know what? They didn't take an oath for, for their daughters. So what they do is they go... And they attack Jabesh Gilead and they slaughter everyone in the city except for 400 virgins. It's a slaughter every your man, woman, or child, everyone that has been married or been with a man, but just spare the, the virgins. And so by doing this, they were able to round up 400 who they gave to the Benjaminites. So like there, that's part of our solution. Of course, it's not quite enough. There's 400, but you got some more to go. 
So they're like, wow, we don't have enough. We got to do a little bit more. So they get more by, they, re, they remember that, well, verse 16, then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for the wives of those who are left? There's still more. Since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them the wives from our daughters, for the people of the Lord had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, here's the plan that looked good in their eyes, behold, there's the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south to Lebanon. They commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Okay, Benjaminites, here's what you, you need. Um, wives, here's what you do. Go lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, because they knew in these festivals that the, the young ladies would come out and they would dance around and they would have, uh, they'd go out there dancing. It says, Then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. I hope we've been very clear through this whole series that not everything they do is something to be uh, repeated. So for the young men in here that you know are looking for a wife or one day will be, not what we're saying to do. So they said, well, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because they're thinking, they said, now verse 22, and when their fathers or brothers come to us to complain, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither do you give them to us, or else you would now be guilty. Saying, hey, this is a win-win, because we swore, you swore this oath with us not to give your wives. You didn't give them to them. They just got taken. So you're off the hook. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And then this whole giant thing, which takes a lot longer if you're reading the whole huge epic, finishes by saying, And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there every man to his inheritance. So now we got that wrapped up. Okay, we can all go home. And then you have the very last book and the very last verse in the book of Judges, which you've heard. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When we were um, out in. Uh, uh, in Colorado, we visited Navigator's headquarters and focused on the family. And while we were there, um, Hope got a uh, devotion book by Jerry Bridges. And uh, I know some of you enjoy him as well. And we have a Sunday school class. He's one of my all-time favorite authors. Uh, if you can pick up any of his devotional books, definitely I'd recommend it. And I was looking at that. And you know, one place he had a, a story that he told about... Uh, place in Europe, I believe it was, that had all these different highways, this, this highway with many, many lanes. And he said, not like over here where you would just kind of line up, you know, single file and take your time and go. He said, there, everyone, they all went in different lanes and the wrong lanes while a train was crossing so that when the train was done, they could be the first ones across. 
So they're all lined up across this to be the first one. But what happened on the other side of the train tracks is those people had the same idea. Instead of being where they're supposed to be, they all lined up so they could be the first one across. So then the train goes by in the caboose, and what do you have? This did not end up being quicker for them. You know, just lots of confusion, and I think they realized this, and sorting things out. Sometimes we think that taking off all the rules, taking off all the strains is going to lead to freedom. But in reality, autonomy is anarchy. When you say there's no law or we're our own law, it just, it just makes anarchy. It just makes chaos. Anarchy does not bring freedom. And if there's anything the book of Judges teaches us, doing things in our own, in our own way, what just seems good to us, even if every Disney movie tells you to follow your heart, this is not the way to go. Theme of Judges is that to just be our own kings and our own boss, this is not good. But let me give you one final thought too. Because if you just have that, you think, well, having a human king, that's the way to go. And later on, they'll get a king, they'll have David. But if you're familiar with what happens after that, I mean, David's the best they get, and it's all downhill from there. So still, having a human king isn't the actual answer either. I mean, in Judges, theoretically, it was, okay, we have, we're going to obey God. Yes, he's supposed to be our king in heaven. And I guess we don't need one on earth, and we'll be fine. Didn't work out real well. But then they tried the other thing. Okay, let's have a human king on earth. But most of them led them into idolatry as well. That ended up being a mess. So are they both wrong? Or are they each hitting on half the issue? And I think the thing is, when we look at the whole Bible, we realize they're each incomplete. That the truth is, we do need God to be our only king. It's not good for us to not have a king. But to just have a, a merely human king we need a human king, but a merely human king isn't going to solve the issue either. But think of what we have in Jesus Christ. We have the God-man that came down, that is, uh, sits and will, has been declared king forever, and that he will return, and that he is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate descendant of David that will rule. And right now he does still rule on high, and we, rule, and we submit to him with our hearts, and we look forward to the day where he will come, and we will have the one who is a king that is both God and man that will rule on this earth. And all the craziness that we have been having, all these things that, that we have to put up with and shake our heads, that he will put things right, and he will put this world the way that it is supposed to be. So we... Jesus Christ is our king now, and we long for his reign on earth as he reigns in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, God, we give you praise. God, we repent of all of the times that we have thought that we could just follow our hearts, our hearts which are wicked and deceptive, that we could be our own law unto ourselves. And let us realize that you have warned us from the beginning. You've warned us time and time again in Scripture that that leads to nothing but anarchy and destruction and dysfunction and death and hell. And so we submit to you. We love you as our king. 
and we love your law because it is good. It is not what saves us. You obeyed the law for us, but your instructions, your command are, are what is good for us. It is the way that we need to live, and we show our gratitude to you for that. And Lord God, help us during this time that you have us in this world as ambassadors in a, in a crazy, absurd world. Help us to follow you and help us to reach out to others. Help us to gather more into your kingdom and help us to never be satisfied with anything but you and to long for the day that you return and you make things right. We thank you for the God-man Jesus Christ, our Savior, who we love. In his name we pray, amen.